a jigsaw puzzle, computer game, video game. Somehow I've not gotten my teenage kids to buy in on this, but you build, you put the amino acids in each one next to its neighbor, step by step by step by step by step by step. Suddenly you step back and you go, aha, it's a picture of a bridge. And in our case, you step back and go, aha, now I know what that protein looks like. I'm Jane Grogan, and I'm a scientist. I've been at this for more than 20 years now, and I think perhaps the only thing better than doing science is talking about the science. Lucky for me, I work in a place where I am surrounded by some of the brightest minds in research. However, there's usually not much time to just sit and talk. And that's why I'm so thrilled to be hosting this podcast. I'm going to step away from my lab today and chat with a colleague about some of the cool stuff we're working on, especially as we try to link these discoveries to new medicines. So grab your favorite drink, get ready to unlock your science brain and join us for Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar a podcast for biotech geeks and the people who want to hang out with them. What comes to mind first when you hear the word proteins? Genes. Expression. Huge gains. Chicken. Eggs. DNA. Uh, NP, Bobby. Steak. Good answers. As a scientist, even I think of steak. And I bet most people out there listening think of proteins in terms of diet somehow what we ingest, what we need to build muscles. In fact, scientists in 18th century Europe thought the same thing when they were taking things like egg whites and wheat gluten and subjecting them to heat or acid and watching them kind of coagulate and proving that they were globs of protein. We know a lot more about proteins today, however. I'm sitting down with my colleague and friend, Sarah Heimowitz, a leading expert who can explain just how far we've come in our understanding of these critical building blocks, proteins. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you, Jane. When we think about proteins just in terms of diet, you know, that kind of relinquishes them to just these immutable building blocks. But in fact, there's so much more than that. They provide the basis of communication within cells and outside of cells around the body. Yes, it's okay to reference previous podcasts. In your previous podcasts, when you have talked about how pain is sensed or how cells are communicating, they're doing it through proteins. Proteins are what's underlying all of that. Let's start with the basics. How do you define a protein? Okay, uh, proteins are made up of little chemical units called amino acids. You could think of it like a necklace that's made of different colored beads. They each have their own shape and that gives them the ability to do different things. And by rearranging them in different orders, you can make proteins of all sorts of shapes and functions. So think of a Lego box and an erector set. And so these amino acids, you can take those building blocks and through evolution, assemble them differently to come up with a protein that maybe breaks down other protein or proteins that help assemble DNA and build the building blocks that your cell uses to preserve information. So the way they do it depends on what amino acids they have and how they're arranged, and a consequence of this is their shapes are very different. So what I've spent most of my time studying is the shapes of the proteins. Jane. Hey, Wellington. <laughs> what are some specific examples of proteins in, in, in the body, and where are they found? Great question. Proteins are everywhere. Just a few examples include proteins in our blood in the form of hemoglobin, in our skin in the form of collagen, and in our glands as growth hormones. And some of these proteins stay quite local in where they are, and some of them are constantly moving about the body. So how does a protein get out of a cell? Because 
proteins not only are important for regulating cell function, they're really important for communicating with other cells. And sometimes they appear on the surface of a cell and you get cell-cell interaction and communication that way. And sometimes they're secreted and they can go and affect a, a cell at a different location. Well, there's two processes. Some proteins, when they're made, there's a little sequence at the beginning of the protein that basically says, I belong outside the cell. It's called the secretion signal. And when the protein's being made, that triggers the protein to be kind of inserted into the membrane or pushed out through the membrane. Sometimes part of the protein remains inside the cell and part of the protein's outside the cell, and that's how we can transmit signals, and sometimes the whole thing goes out. Um, and so that's really dependent on having this little signal that says, you know, move me to the right place. Send me out. But there's also proteins that end up in vesicles. So they're like encapsulated with other proteins into little, um, not balls exactly, but little pods that then the entire pod can be pushed out of the cell. And um, once, once the protein is outside the cell or the pod's outside the cell, it can just diffuse and move around to the neighboring cells or move to a cell at a distance. Or move into the bloodstream and get transported yes. somewhere else. Yes. Part of what's really fascinating to me about that is specificity. You have proteins that are made in the liver, for example, that are very different to the heart. You need specific enzymes that are produced only in the liver and they've got to act locally and they don't really diffuse out um, except under severe disease states. Um, and I'm an immunologist, so not only do the cells I work on have to move around the body, but they produce a lot of things that have to move around the body as well. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. And I, I think the way proteins are used to communicate whether it's to marshal the immune system or to signal danger or to, to tell your nervous system that there was a pain, you know, you stepped on a nail and stubbed your toe and now your brain knows that you're suffering from pain. It's all dependent on proteins and cells talking to each other. And it also makes you realize that we're buzzing and communicating all the time. So even in our deepest, darkest REM sleep, <laughs> all of this is still going on. Yeah, no, your body is a busy, complicated place. Okay, I just want to go back and talk numbers. How many proteins are in a cell? From what I understand, bacteria have like a couple of million, yeast have about 50 million, human cells can have billions of different proteins in their cell. I'm going to disagree with you on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think it actually was a huge surprise to the field when the human genome was sequenced because we think of humans as being so much more complex than any other animal. And it turns out that we have fewer genes. So genes are the unit of DNA that encodes for a specific protein. And we have fewer than corn, which has apparently a way more complex genome. So the actual number of different proteins in a human as specified by the number of genes we have Something in the order of 20,000. So not necessarily different proteins, just number of proteins. Oh, so if you're talking the number of copies of proteins, that's a different question. And that's a big number, and I don't even know the answer off the top of my head. These are small. It's a bit like trying to count the number of angels on the, you know, head of a head pin. Of a pin. <laughs> yes, uh, fortunately we're not St. Thomas Aquinas, and we're not engaged in that. <laughs> we use scientific method to look at our proteins. Um, so, you know, how do you look at anything? Um, there's a question of when you're looking at a forest, do you want to see the forest or the leaves? So I'm going to start first with the forest, which is sometimes, you don't want to see just one copy of the protein. You want to see what a bunch of them are doing all together. And so we, we um, 
use recombinant approaches to make large quantities of protein, and that's frankly the basis of the whole biotech industry, which is the ability to, to use genetic engineering to produce recombinant protein. What we usually do is we synthesize a piece of DNA. We chemically come up with a uh, design and produce a piece of DNA that has the codes for the protein we want. And then we take that DNA and we put it into a host cell of some sort. And we put it in that cell in such a way that it forces that cell to make a lot of the protein we want. And then we grow Grow those up. cells in culture and... We do, we grow them in culture. We call it fermentation and it is related to the fermentation that produces beer. And some of the people who um, are really good at making recombinant DNA also have side interests in brewing beer, but that's a whole <laughs> different podcast. Um, so we, we take those cells and we grow them in big glass flasks. So you're looking at proteins and bacteria on the large scale. And, in, you know, there's, there's fermenters that grow like 10 or 20,000 liters at a time. But we're, we're usually growing a couple of liters at a time. Um, and then we take those cells once they've grown and they're nice and happy. And we um, isolate the recombinant DNA from it. And then we end up with a pure protein that we can then do things with. So these amino acids can also be recognized based on their different charges. Yes. And so when you put uh, a different mix of amino acids together, you can start to identify different proteins based on the mix of all those different amino acids and their charges. Yes. We can do other essentially inferential techniques of saying, oh, this is the right molecular weight. It has the right kinds of charges. It, um, uh, if we try to separate it using a different approach, we only see the one, the one protein that we want. So that's kind of how do you look at proteins in a, a macro kind of way, or how you look at the general properties of it. And we have all sorts of biophysical tools to characterize them that basically take advantage of how the chemical nature of the protein, how it interacts with light, or how it interacts with by charge to characterize, do we have the right protein? So these are, in some way, a very two-dimensional way of looking at the protein. Yes. What about techniques that, that you and others in the field use to start to look at the structures? Yes, all the things I mentioned are very inferential. It's like the blind man looking at the elephant. They tell you one thing about one aspect of it. What we want to know is how is the elephant assembled? What does it look like and what does it do? Um, as opposed to just knowing that the tail is hairy. Um, <laughs> so. The technique that I use is called x-ray crystallography. And what we essentially do is we take that purified protein and we coax it into forming a protein crystal. This is the same idea as water forming a crystal of ice. Ice is crystallized water. Mm -hmm. um, we know how to do crystallized water. You just put it in the freezer and you know your little ice cube maker and out pops ice. It's a little trickier for protein, so we have to try a couple of things and cross our fingers and use a little, we're sometimes accused of losing a little black magic, which is all a way of saying we can't figure out, we don't know from the get-go how to do it, but we figure it out. And once we have a crystal of protein, and for us, a big crystal is a millimeter. I'm gonna back you up and say, how do you use X-ray crystallography to get at the structure of a protein? This is what um, I love because it involves math and science and physics. And cool equipment. And cool equipment. Yes, I make it, it's, it satisfies the inner physics geek in me. Um, so what you do is you take advantage of the fact that the crystal is you know, more than millions. It's, it's 10 to a large number of copies of the pro protein all lined up. So, you know, proteins, all that chemistry, you've got atoms, you know, be, be, beyond just your molecule. 
those amino acids are composed of atoms, and those atoms have a nucleus, which is positively charged, and the electrons orbiting around them, which are negatively charged. And once you've got this whole protein assembled made up of thousands of, of, of atoms, like a typical protein might have 4,000 atoms in it, you've got this whole smear of electrons running around the outside of it. And what we do is we take that crystal and we shoot x-rays at it, and when those x-rays hit the electrons, some of them get bent. So they diffract. They diffract. And that process of bending is called diffraction. And it's a little bit like um, waves in an ocean, that a little ripple, when they all combine together, you get a big wave. And each, each molecule doesn't bend the x-ray very much, but when you have many, many, many of them lined up as they do in the crystal, they bend the x-rays. And they bend them enough that we can detect how the x-rays are bent. And then we use the beauty of physics and math, and we back-calculate where the electrons had to be to be a bent in that direction. And once we know where the electrons are, we can figure out where the atoms so are. So then you can build a model back of what the three-dimensional structure of that protein would look like. Yes, and that process is actually really beautiful, because then you have these things that look like tubes or shapes. It's like an amazing jigsaw puzzle. Biggest it, jigsaw puzzle out it's there. It's a jigsaw puzzle, computer game, video game. Somehow I've not gotten my teenage kids to buy in on this, but you, know, you build, you put the amino acids in each one next to its neighbor. You figure out, you know, is, it, is, is that long skinny side chain pointing straight out? Is it bent over? Are they interacting with each other? And so you're doing it step by step by step by step by step by step. And then you, you, we do a process called refinement where we essentially calculate if my model is correct, would it give me the diffraction pattern that I measured? And we keep tweaking our model until the model matches the data as best we can. And so once you've done that jigsaw puzzle and you've spent so long looking at the, what's this piece doing? What's this next piece doing? What's this next piece doing? Suddenly you step back and you go, aha, it's a picture of a bridge. And in our case, you step back and go, aha, now I know what that protein looks like. So it starts to give you visual acuity, actually, as yes. to the function of what that protein could be. Jane, uh, if, if you can see with this level of acuity, is this going to be the way we always look at molecules? I think as these technologies develop, they become more commonly used in laboratory practices. And the beauty of being able to take X-ray crystallography and look high resolution at a, at a structure right down to the atomic level um, provides us such rapid information that this is going to be more and more commonly used in science. People listening probably want to know why we work so hard to visualise these proteins. Because we're human. <laughs> and, and curious. And curious. But also, uh, less flippantly, um, we have evolved eyesight for a reason, and our brain is really hardwired to do pattern recognition visually. And we have all these inferential little techniques, but when you see it in three dimensions, it is so much easier to then go, aha, this is what that meant. When we're working on a drug design project, and we see how the potential drug interacts with the protein, it is so much easier then to think, oh, you know, I've made a lot of versions of that drug and I make this piece a little smaller, it doesn't work as well. And now I see why, because there's a big cavity there. Or if I make this piece a little bigger, the molecule doesn't work as well either. And that's because it's bumping into something. So on the one hand, having the visual 
is a way for us to organize the data in our mind that is so much easier than looking at a big spreadsheet of things and trying to see the pattern. Well, I guess by visualizing it as well, you start to see that the protein is not just like a round spherical ball. It's got pits and grooves, it's got charged pockets. Um, and when you think about it interacting with another protein or with even a drug target or a rationally designed drug target, you start to look at where in the pits and grooves that you may want to actually place that therapeutic. Yes, doing the structure frequently generates hypotheses as to how the protein might work. And that is hard to figure out when you're just looking at the linear sequence of the, of the, of the protein. And when you look at it in three dimensions and you see this side has a, you know, a nice surface that's curved that would perfectly fit around DNA and it has the right kind of charges, it lets you form the hypothesis of, oh, maybe this part of the protein interacts with DNA. Maybe I can go test that hypothesis. Maybe that's not something I realized that this protein did. And now I can understand what that, what that mutant is doing and why it's disease causing. So, Knowing the three-dimensional structure can help us better understand what the protein's doing. It can help us better understand the way in which the protein can, um, the protein's activity can be disrupted or altered, and it helps us form hypotheses as to how the biology works. So what was it like the first moment you visualized a protein? You know, it was a real aha moment, and it came in two ways. I was, um, an undergraduate student, I was reading a paper in the library, and I had been interested in these proteins called zinc fingers that help um, regulate how DNA functions. And they showed these pictures where it has a three-dimensional fold, and some of the proteins are arranged in a helix, and seeing that made it all come to, to light. And what I'd heard about protein structure and memorized, oh, there's the, the linear structure, there's the secondary structure, which is does it form you know, sheets or helices, there's the tertiary structure, which is how they pack together, and the quaternary structure, which is how do proteins assemble. It wasn't until I looked at that that I was like, oh, and that's why then it has this function. And so it was a real moment of sort of these disparate things that I'd learned academically. I'd memorized them for tests, but I didn't really understand it until I saw that visual picture. It's the seeing is believing, it's actually. It's the seeing is believing. And then the second experience was, you know, I was thinking about going to graduate school and I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I wanted it to be something with chemistry and physics and math and biology. So, you know, your basic science graduate school. And so I had applied to a biophysics program, which I liked because you got to do all of these different pieces of it. And one of the graduate students was giving me a tour around the, the building and she took me into this one, um, one room. And it's this dark room with a roll of, of computers and people staring intently at the screens. It was called a, a graphics room at the time when, you know, you, the, the fancy computers that we used to do determine the structures of proteins were more expensive and so you signed up for them at two hours at a time and shared them. This was a different era. But I went in and on the screen she was showing me one of the proteins she was working on. And this is why I always use blue for my electron density. She had this blue electron density there and it was one of these computers where you could rotate it in three dimensions and with the special glasses to look at it. Spin it around. And spin it around. And again, this is 20 some odd years ago, more than 20 years ago, I'm gonna date myself. And it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen. That not only did the protein have this three dimensional structure, but you could move it around and you could look inside it and you could see how it was folded together and how those amino acids were packing. And then you could 
think about how it worked. And so that was really a transformative moment. And I saw that and I was like, I want to do this. And so I did come back to graduate school that next year and I looked at a couple different labs, but I ended up doing exactly that. And that's what I've been doing for the last 25 years. I think one of the really cool things about the 3D visualization is that when we look at proteins just drawn out, the sequence just drawn out on a piece of paper, we can infer certain things about it. But once you actually look at that 3D, it's like ribbons that wrap around themselves and you can start to see why a protein will be interacting with other proteins in different ways. So what we've inferred from paper, we can actually then see visually. It's very powerful. Yes, and when we look at the sequence of a protein, the amino acid sequence, we, we tend to look at it as a linear sequence. But what you see in three-dimensional space is that amino acids that may be quite distant in the linear sequence of the protein, when they're folded up, they're next to each other and they're talking to each other. And that also better informs how the protein's working or how we might want to target it if we want to affect its interaction in a therapeutic setting. Yeah, so, so to that point, how are you and others using this information to actually think about new therapeutics? We do it in two ways. We use proteins as therapeutics, so we will make recombinant proteins um, and then try to modify them or change them or design them so that they interact with the target protein um, to say block a signal. And so we might do that for cancer cells where there's a growth signal or a growth factor that's telling the cells to divide. And we can come up with this recombinant protein and uh, prevent that signal from getting to its intended receptor. But the other way we use it, where we usually use it to drive drug discovery, is when we're trying to come up with what we call a small molecule drug. So a protein we call a large molecule because it's got thousands of atoms in it. Um, a small molecule drug has tens of atoms in it. So it's, it's um, much, much smaller and it can do things that a big protein can't do, like it can slip inside a cell and can target the proteins that are in the cell that may be acting aberrantly and causing human disease. And so there, we look at that, we try to determine the structure of the target protein. So the protein that we think we want to regulate its activity or change its activity and that we think that'll be beneficial in human disease. And so there we do look at the three-dimensional structure, and as you said, we, we look to see where there's nooks or there's crannies or where's the, where's the chemistry happening if it's an enzyme, what's, what's, the, what's the part of the protein that's interacting with another protein, how do we want to stop its activity or enhance its activity? So we, we get that information from the structure. So it's really structure-based drug design. That is really structure-based drug design, and then we'll determine the structure of that protein with a small molecule that we know binds to it, but maybe doesn't have all the properties we want. Maybe it's not potent enough. Maybe there's reasons it doesn't have the properties that are compatible with being in a pill. And we'll look at that and we'll think, okay, if we add a little more here and change that small molecule, if we grow it a little here, if we trim it back a little here, does it bind better? And then we'll go off and do, make it and do the experiment. And then we'll check the structure again and say, huh, did it, did it work the way I thought it would? Should we change it? And we'll go through many iterations of that cycle. We'll do that hundreds of times in the context of trying to come up with the right molecule. Okay, Sarah, fast forward five years. Where do you think the field is going to be for protein chemistry? And what advice would you give to budding young scientists out there who are really interested in this space? You know, it is a really interesting time right now because that, that process I described of using x-rays to determine the structure of proteins, we have new technologies that are coming along that are going to let us determine structures differently and ask different questions. So, for instance, there's a field called cryo-electron microscopy 
where we essentially build special microscopes that essentially allow us to image protein complexes directly, as opposed to doing that indirect process of forcing the x-rays to bend. Purifying them and then... We still need purified protein, but we don't need to get the crystals, which is always a tricky part. Cryo-EM is a little more direct in that you're imaging different proteins, one copy of the protein at a time, and then assembling all those images. So it's like you're taking a snapshot of a person from many, many different angles and then reconstructing what the three-dimensional person looks like. So it's like taking like. the photo rather than the negative of the image. Yes, yes. It really opens up the field of proteins that we can look at. So we're going to be able to look at more big protein complexes and really understand how those protein-protein interactions in those complexes, how they work and how they go awry. So I think it is going to be a golden age for really looking at how the proteins interact and understanding how these molecular machines do chemistry, build our bodies, and underlie life. Wow, Jane, this seems like a really big deal. Yeah, it's a really big deal. In fact, three scientists just won this year's Nobel Prize in Chemistry for their work in developing cryo-electron microscopy, or cryo-EM as we say. You can take a protein, or even a virus and bacteria, quickly freeze them, shoot electrons at them and look at them in their natural state right down to the atomic level. The result is more clarity in the protein structures and you can scan and look at the landscape with much more vision. Really, Google the resolution difference when you get home and you'll be amazed. I think it's a really cool example of how technological advancement with computers and machines is really helping us to visualise very, very, very small things, i.e. proteins in this sense, in their natural states. Yes, and it, it is... It, I should have figured the order of magnitude out. Maybe let me do it out loud for just a second. Mm -hmm. If your typical protein is about... Um, say your typical protein is about 50 angstroms. An angstrom is 10 to the minus 10th meters. So it's 10 orders of magnitude smaller than basically a human being or this table. And so that's just amazing that we have these techniques that can allow us to look at something so small with such detail. And it really has taken, you know, over the past 50 or 60 years, we only got the first structure of a protein you know, sort of 65 years 50s, ago. Yeah. The, you know, there was a lot of iterative work. That was the foundational work. And we started getting multiple structures, late 60s, 70s. And you know, the last 25 years, we have an explosion of knowing what individual proteins look like or two proteins together look like, and it's, it's, it changes the kinds of questions we can ask. I, for one, am really happy that you are at the forefront of this field, and um, I also very much enjoy uh, sitting in a bar and talking science with you. I enjoy it too, Jade, any time, <laughs> and we need a few more projects to collaborate on. I've had so much fun working together over Thank the last Thank you, years. Sarah. <laughs> So proteins aren't just food, there's so much more than that. These technologies show us how proteins fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. In my own work, these insights into proteins and how they interact are helping me understand mechanisms by which an immune cell and a cancer cell are talking to each other. Thanks for joining me. Next episode, we're staying small. We're moving from the world of proteins into the world of chemistry, medicinal chemistry to be specific. So stay tuned. In the meantime, keep telling your science fans about us, like us on Facebook and Twitter, and most importantly, if you haven't already, subscribe and rank us on iTunes. And now for me, it's back to the lab.